0: I want you to turn in your text to Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 36. And this is another one of those messages, of course the words will be on the screen and you're welcome to do it that way, where I would very much encourage you to keep your Bibles open and to keep your Bibles in the text of this Acts passage because I want you to be able to actually um, interact with the text even while I'm speaking and see some of the things that we're talking about. Because if we're going to talk about baptism in light of God's word, then we need to be in God's word while we talk about it. As we anticipate what God will speak to us this morning, let's pray for his presence, his blessing, and his spirit. Thank you, Father, for the gift of that baptism is. Thank you that you have shown it to us, shared it with us, to be reminded of your work of calling your people to yourself. That, that sign of water is a sign that person is a part of God's family. And Father, this morning as we walk through the complexities and some of the discernment that we need to understand more fully covenant baptism, baptism in its very nature, then truly, Lord, guide us and give us your wisdom. I pray, Father, that you will humble me as a steward of your word, that I am obedient to you alone in the proclamation of it, that my desire is to be about your work, not my own, not simply my my passions or my my knowledge, my understanding, but Lord, may I speak your words and be a faithful steward of that. And may we be, may we be faithful listeners. May we understand, O oh Lord, that um, when you're doing this work this morning, that you are speaking to us. You're speaking to our hearts. May we listen. May we be moved. May we be transformed through the power of your Spirit and because of the work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things all in his name alone. Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 26. or Sorry, 36. Peter is in the temple courts. This is right after Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And he spent some time addressing the people in the temple courts about Jesus. And we come to this point in his speech. You can read the rest of the speech if you'd like. I would prefer you not do it while I'm doing the sermon, but that's okay if you do that too. Verse 36, he says this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus that he's been talking about in this speech, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and, P- and said to Peter and the other apostles, "Brothers and sisters, what shall we do?" And Peter replied, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of this Jesus of, of in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins." And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's key. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you who are already thinking, why when we're talking about covenant baptism would pastor pick this text? You have a couple things in there that seem to say that baptism should be done out of faith in Christ by the one who receives the gift of baptism. It says, repent and be baptized therefore. It says, save yourselves. In fact, it was even interesting this week because I had somebody call me in the office, a cold call, somebody who's not a member of this community, who is asking about how to speak to people who believe that salvation in and of itself um, needs to be something that a human being, a person responds to. And, you know, the passage that she was talking about was where um, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock if you will but open the door and welcome me in seems to be that there's a part of a human decision there that somebody who does that work of uh, choosing to open the door to Jesus, uh, then they should receive the gift of baptism. And this woman was trying to figure out how to speak to people who believed that salvation in and of itself comes from a human being making a choice. The phrase that we use for that understanding is Arminianism. How does she speak to Arminians? And, and, and when we look at this text, we see that it, it seems like Peter is saying that there's some component of baptism. It's dependent upon a, a human's will. A person making a decision to follow Jesus. And thus, my first introductory point being, I'm fearful I'm going to botch this. And I'm not fearful that I'm going to botch this because... Um, I don't have stuff that's good to say. In fact, any of you who've ever spoken to me or heard me talk about covenant baptism, you know this is something that I'm very passionate about. There's lots of stuff here that I want to share, and I'm excited about sharing that with you. But I also understand that in the midst of me speaking and you hearing that there can be some trouble there. And I do not in any way desire to be the person who is the conduit for this being messed up for you or misunderstood for you or not clear for you. There's weight here. I mean, really, when we talk about this baptismal font, although this one hasn't been, in and of itself the baptismal font has been a place of battle In the church, for generations, wars have been fought over baptism. Lives have been fought, lives have been lost over baptism. So when we talk about this, we need to understand, to some degree, the gravity of it. That's why I'm nervous. But I think it's a holy nervous. Because it's a holy nervous. Let's do this. Let's see what God has to say to us this morning in His word. The first thing for us to understand is ask the question: Who is Peter talking to here? Who is Peter talking to in the temple courts on this day of Pentecost that are receiving this message, Repent and be baptized? these are Jews it says so in the text they're Jews earlier on in his speech he's addressing the Jewish crowd and remember that in Judaism there was a different sign that you were a part of God's family and I was corrected by someone this week because I've said it on several occasions that on the seventh day a Jewish boy would be baptized I was corrected. It was a holy correction. I'm grateful for it. On the eighth day, a Jewish boy would be circumcised into the family of God. And that was a sign that, especially because we hear Peter saying to them, brothers in the temple courts, it doesn't really give us the specifics exactly exactly where he is. He could have been in the men-only section, possibly, okay, maybe. Um, So maybe he was only talking to brothers. But these are all people, if they are the brothers who are Jews, would have been circumcised. You can't enter into the temple unless you are Jewish, unless you get into the courts of the Gentiles. And it seems to be that Peter's not there. He's talking to the Jewish crowd. And they're of age. They're of age to hear. So these are adults or adult-like. And I don't exactly know all, I remember all the temple stuff. Perhaps they needed to have gone through the transition into manhood in order to enter into the temple courts. So these could have been all men. And when Peter is delivering the message to them, he's delivering the message to a group of Jewish men who've been involved in the sign of the family of God that is circumcision. And he is saying to them, guess what? We now have Jesus and things are different for you you who have received the sign of being part of the family of God that is Jewish and distinctive in only it being for men, I'm saying now things are different, so you who've already been a part of the Jewish tradition and received that sign, for you to become part of the family of God through Jesus Christ, there's a different sign. So participate in that new sign, you adults who have received this sign sign of circumcision. So for us to hear this message and to hear that verse where Jesus or when Peter says to the people repent and be baptized, he's saying it to a group of adults. He's saying it to people who are Jews. He's saying it to people who have been circumcised. This is not the broader teaching of baptism. Yet, until he begins to shift into that other phrase about the promise of God. Peter is saying that in Christ, God has done a new thing. But now they have to figure out what things change from the old way of doing things. Remember, there were all these Old Testament laws for the Jewish people. Circumcision was just one of them. But we understand, as we read the text of the New Testament, we see Jesus coming, being the fulfillment of the law, that some of that law changes. And now Peter is beginning this process of saying to the Jewish people, now that things are new in Christ, we have to figure out what changes. Circumcision on the eighth day, does that change? Dietary laws, does that change? Some of the festival observances, do those change? Because there's all these laws. Leviticus is full of them. Deuteronomy is full of them. There are other places where you read the law and the question that we have to pose is, wait, what changed in Christ? Do we as Christians now at the river even need to fulfill some of these Old Testament laws? What makes us not do some of the things? Why do we not tie the Torah, the law, on our arms and upon our head? Why do we not do some of these things? What's changed? And how do we discover that? This is the beginning of that process with Peter and these folks at the temple. And even in his speech, Peter's giving us some challenging things to think about because he seems to say one thing in verse 38. Where he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It seems like he's saying that the process is you repent of your sins, so you have an understanding of who Jesus is, and you repent of it, and then you're baptized. That's the step. But then he says something very different. He says this. He says, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are, for all, all are far off, for whom the Lord our God will call. Does anyone else wonder what's going on here? Is it just me? Just me sitting in my, sitting in my office. I, I, I throw it. Do you read this? And do you ask that question? What are we supposed to figure out? Please put your hand up if you're wondering. Please, because I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, wait, have we in covenant baptism got it wrong? Is it about that repentance and then faith? Is it about repentance and then baptism? And, and, and that's the, it has to come to an age of decision where someone acknowledges their sin. But then we get this statement about, this is for your children, for all who are far off, whom the Lord will call. And it seems that he's saying something very different there. And of course, the early church had to struggle with this. And frankly, we have to too. And we have. You may not be familiar with some of the baptism wars. You may not be familiar with the struggle that we have. I can tell you that we have it. And we have it to this day. There's, one, uh, there's, there's a number of different churches in town, and you can walk into that church, and you want to you wanna find out what that church is willing to fight about. You ask, what do you guys do on baptism? How do, you, how do you baptize people? Do you baptize adults? Do you baptize children? How do you see baptism? And you will begin to see lines drawn in the sand. And certain churches will say certain things. Some will simply say, that we baptize children we baptize children and that baptism is actually a sign of salvation and that in in some cases is a a catholic tradition so if you were to go to the catholic church that that is something that actually has a means of salvation Some will say that baptism is a sign of faith, and you cannot have faith as a baby, so you need to be baptized later on when you can come to the age of decision. And that is generally in the Baptist Calvary Chapel tradition, and I know that there are some of you who are very familiar with that tradition. You come from that background. Now, we say, okay, I mean, we get along well with Pathway Church. We know there are people there. We get along with some of the other churches in town that don't baptize like we do, and they wonder about us sometimes. We still get along together. It hasn't always been the case. In fact, it's been a big deal in the life of the church. At the time of Luther and the Reformation, There was a whole group of people that backlashed against this idea of covenant baptism of God. And they read this text and others like it and said, wait, you folks are messing it up, called the Anabaptists. And if you spend any time in Wikipedia, do a look up on Anabaptists and you will see that for literally over a hundred years, blood was shed over this thing. People were burned at the stake. Even a person like Martin Luther was involved in that sort of stuff. And they were actively pursuing people who said the only way that baptism could be expressed was if you believed in Jesus. And Martin Luther and others said, wait, that's wrong. We're going to get you because that teaching is heretical. We're going to fight about it so much so that people will die historically within the life of the church, this baptism thing is a a big deal because people have said things about it that at least we need to wonder about because they're problematic. And we need to wonder about them here at the river because we need to understand what the full text of Scripture says. We can't just proof text. We can't just pick one verse. And say, this is the full teaching of baptism. When Peter says, repent and be baptized. Is that the full teaching of scripture on baptism? And I don't think it is. Because some would say things like, baptism saves. Well, that one for me is just one of those things where I, I, I can't even buy that even for a moment. Baptism doesn't save. Jesus saves. Grace saves. Let's just say that. Let's say that clearly. Okay, and if you think that this, all of a sudden, me dropping water onto a baby's head or me dunking somebody or whatever, all of a sudden that person is saved, I'm going to tell you, that's not the method of salvation. This water is just water. That tank is just a tank. God's grace through Jesus Christ is what saves. Okay? Okay? So I think we can move past that one fairly quickly. But then what about this one? Baptism is a response to Christ's work of salvation in the life of the baptizee. So the person who receives baptism is the one who, because of the faith given them through grace, that baptism is a sign of that. What do we do with that one? That's more the Baptist mode. But the problem even with that... From the perspective of this church, is that that fundamentally puts at least a little bit of impetus of faith on who? The believer. The person who receives the gift of baptism has to express that that faith for baptism to, quote unquote, take. But who is the mover? in faith who is the one who works so that you and I even might believe it's the Holy Spirit it's God himself and when we think that any component of baptism to get to that spot to get to this place is a human will or decision We're starting to take away the impetus for faith from God and put it on ourselves. And I'll tell you, I'm certainly not comfortable with that. Why? Because I know just how messed up I am. If it's dependent upon me for anything to grow, to believe, to understand, to express faith, I'm in serious trouble. Because I'm a goober. I'm a doofus. I mess it up constantly, and if I need my movement, my growth, my development to get to that space, then I am acknowledging a responsibility that I'm simply not enough of myself capable of doing. The reason why I get really excited about baptism and the reason why I get really excited on baptism days is because God is moving. God is at work. God is working in the lives of all you people getting pregnant. You need to stop, by the way, all of you. You need to stop. We found out another staff person is pregnant this this week. I'm freaking out. I'll let her tell you when it's time. God is moving here in this thing, in the tank, in, in the rivers that you saw Pastor Will show last week. In the baptism font at the year 300 that you can go to in a church like Corinth and see this, this thing shaped in, a, in the shape of a cross that you, uh, you as a baptizee would descend into yourself with your family. With your children. And you would descend and you would be baptized into the cross of Christ. Literally that was dug into the ground. Or into the womb. There's baptism fonts that are shaped like wombs. You descend into the womb. Why? Because when you come out, what are you? You're reborn. Because of what you've done? No. Because what God's done in Christ? We understand baptism. In this church. In this community, as a God acted activity, God, through Christ, has done work and He continues to do work in His family, claiming His children for His own and moving them to the place where they can get wet. Not just with water, but with His Spirit, with His forgiveness, with His redemption, with His future, with His hope, with His life, with everything. That's God's activity. That's one of the reasons why I struggle when I sit and talk with brothers and sisters who say baptism can only be done for a person who believes. For a person who's come to a position of faith because then we're not recognizing God as actor, okay? But I still haven't talked yet much about why we baptize infants. Let's go back to the text if we're going to do that. And Jimmy, I don't know what to do. If you want to put screens up, go do it. And if I'm saying it, great, do it. If I'm not, then keep going because I know people get psycho if they don't have their blanks filled out. First point on C. Paul's whole address on Pentecost gives us something helpful here. Not just the part that I read, but the part before. Why? Why is it important that we receive what's before in the text? Because we see the Old Testament at work. And we see one word about David that's absolutely key to our understanding of the text. That verse or that word is also in our speech from Peter, but we understand it more fully when we understand it for David. And that word is promise. What we understand about baptism is God's promise to his people that you are my people. And it's not just David's promise, it's also Abram's promise, it's also Noah's promise, it's also Adam's promise if I want to say there's seven covenants that God makes and a couple times he renews them with his people in the Old Testament this in this speech Peter is pointing to those promises that he gave in the Old Testament and he says in essence Peter is saying God promised something and those people didn't get their side of the promise fulfilled we all know the story of David how did David do at living that holy life that God called him to. He messed it up. But God didn't. In fact, God didn't. And David is, and I can't remember exactly the numbers, it's at least at least 800 years before Jesus, somewhere between 800 and 1,200 years, and I'm sure there's somebody who can correct me on that. Between 800 and 1,200 years before Peter is giving this speech, he points back to a promise that God made with David, and he says, even now, God is fulfilling his promise. And what we understand there is that if God is fulfilling his promise to David, it's because God is a promise keeper. And if God is a promise keeper and he made promises in the Old Testament, then we understand that he is still keeping those promises even to today. And he kept this promise to David. But he also kept this promise to Abram and to Noah and to Joshua and to Adam and Eve. And one of his promises to Abram, was that I will be your God and you will be my people. And what form sign did he use for that? He used on the eighth day circumcision. So on the eighth day, God's people, in order to be obedient to the call of God and to be a part of fulfilling their side of the promise, the promise that God kept on keeping, they were supposed to express it through welcoming their children into the promise of God through circumcision on the eighth day. That promise was still at work at the time of Peter's speech. It was still going on on the eighth day. You brought your kid for the bris, the circumcision. That's how it worked. God kept his promises then, and God was the actor. And verse 39 of our text makes it clear that God hasn't changed his expression of his promise, not just to the person receiving the promise, but to the children and the people after them. Where he says, and this is for your children and all who are far ahead, all whom the Lord will call. He's making it clear to Peter, through Peter, to the Jews, that guess what? My promises that were at work in the Old Testament, that were you were part of the family of God as a child, and as a child you were part of the family God, of God, the sign was circumcision on the eighth day. Those promises are affirmed even here, that you, this is a promise not just for you, but for your children as well. And the thing is that God is always keeping this promise, and He's the only one who does it right. God keeping promises or the covenants are always one-sided. The action of keeping them is always one-sided. God is the one who does the work. Now, for us to understand too, this infant baptism or circumcision transferred to infant baptism was expressed in the life of the early church. This is how they worshipped. This is how they understood it. This is how they understood God continuing to choose people to be a part of his family. So the early church, Peter Peter later on, I mean, he's doing the missionary journeys, and what is he doing when he's out there? He's baptizing people in the water of baptism, And then, because they have faith and they offer their children as part of the promise, he was baptizing them into the family of God. And we see that in early church documents, that the early church was doing this. This is how the early church worshipped. So people like Peter and Paul, they never said, in fact, this is really important, they never said, guess what? All that stuff about the promises of God in the Old Testament, that you were part of the family of God, right from being a child who was born to a Jew and was circumcised, that now in the New Testament, when you're a part of a Christian family, they never said, guess what? It's changed now. And now the only way that you are part of the family of God is not on the eighth day or sometime earlier on when you are an infant, but when you come to an age of decision. It's really interesting to me that the, oftentimes when I'm having discussions with people who believe in believer-only baptism, that they say, prove it. That the, the Bible says that you should be baptizing children. Prove it. Because I see nowhere in the New Testament really clearly there's places where you can extrapolate it when the jailer and jailer gets saved and then he and his whole family were baptized. You can move into those discussions and how old were the children and the day that they understand and all that other sort of stuff. You can say that there is no place in the New Testament where it clearly says and baptize your infants eighth day and the eighth day after their birth. But There is no place in the New Testament where what was done in the Old was changed. You were baptized, or you were circumcised into the promise on the eighth day in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say, guess what, now the expression is different. It says the expression is different, by the way. It's, uh, Colossians 2, it says circumcision and baptism. Those are, the, those are the signs, and eventually they say you don't have to be circumcised, you can be baptized. It, it, it never says, now we're going to be doing things differently and we're not going to baptize our kids. There is a silence of Scripture, and it's really interesting to me when you start to think about the other things that happened. You had a group of things that changed. I want you to think about this with me for a moment I know I'm all over the place but it's because this is so complex and we really need to work through you know in the Old Testament you weren't allowed to eat lizards you weren't allowed to eat pork why can we eat bacon today why is it okay for Christians to eat bacon how do we understand that from scripture anyone quickly Peter Peter's dream thank you perfect We understand it from Peter's dream. That was a big deal, by the way. It was a big deal because Peter had a dream, and he woke up from the dream, and he was uncomfortable with the dream. So he began to talk with the brothers about the dream. And he said, wait, God told me, Jesus told me that now we can eat anything. Is that okay? And they discussed it. And they worked it out. And they struggled with it. And they probably argued about it. And eventually they got to the point of saying, you know what? It is. It's okay. So, everything you read in the Old Testament about dietary laws has changed. Why? Because we see the big change. And we see in the first synod. And I can't remember, Acts 17, I think. 15, thank you, Will. Acts 15, we see a big deal. What that, what's that big deal about? Big deal about circumcision. Old Testament practice. We got this big Old Testament practice. And Paul is saying, wait, hold on. Is that what you need to be a part of the family of God? And they say, wait, I'm not sure. What do you think? They work it out. They pray together. They worship together. It's a big deal. And finally they say, you know what? It's okay. Circumcision is not what it was in the Old Testament. Why? Because of Jesus. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. And now we show the sign and seal of Jesus Christ. It's grace grace in the life of a believer and in their family through baptism. It's a big deal when these things change. But we never get the big deal when it comes to infant baptism. You in the Old Testament were part of the family of God on the eighth day, the sign of circumcision. And all the way over here in the New Testament, there's no big deal. Why? Because God is the actor. And God says, you are part of my family when I call you to be a part of my family. Not when you do it. It's not about you. It's about the work of Jesus Christ. It's about his grace. It's about him calling you to be a part of his family. Now I know what some of you are going to say. You're going to say, well, what about, I don't even know where I am on the screen. It's okay. What happens when we get here? And there's somebody who offers up, I mean, the the 170 families that are pregnant and have children right now. When they stand up here and they offer, are they making a decision? Are Are they moving? God is the one who planted that faith in them. God is the one who worked out his salvation through Jesus Christ in their hearts and their lives. And their response out of gratitude, thankfulness, exactly the way it should be, is to say... child it's part of the promise too there's no one that can stand here in this spot in front of this font who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their savior because faith hasn't done its work yet God's faith when somebody who is a believing parent responds to the action of God of faith They don't act. They respond to God's action of faith in their lives in gratitude. I'm going to tell you here, there's sometimes work that has to be done in the lives of families when you're baptizing your children. You should be standing here, and I know many of you are, in gratitude, thankfulness. You're fired up about how much God loves you. That you're saying, and I'm a child. My child. Is a part of that promise of God. With God as the actor, God fundamentally the mover in me, and now God fundamentally the mover and the actor through his promise, not through salvation, through his promise in the life of my child. I love these days. I love these days because they celebrate God's grace. Us receiving something we simply don't deserve. I'm going to tell you about my two favorite weeks in Visalia. Two favorite worship services in Visalia. And I know there's a bunch of other stuff there. And you can, those are affirmation things that I put there. Those are important. They are what we believe about baptism. And I haven't vetted that through the elders, but I think they're all good and copacetic and everything like that. But I want to tell you about the two weeks that were most exciting to me in my work in Visalia. Two beautiful weeks. First week was a week where a family that we had met when their children, I think they were in about fifth or sixth grade at the time, and they came to the church. They weren't believers in covenant baptism. They were from the more um, believer baptism mode. And they came to church and they said, we want our kid to be baptized. He was a teenager at that time. We want our kid to be baptized by immersion because he believes. And it was really wonderful, wonderful Sunday. We had actually the cow trough. We had a cow trough there um, that we, we decorated, and we welcomed him up, and we welcomed his father up, and we did a baptism by immersion on the stage because we saw God at work in the life of this young man. It was a beautiful, beautiful celebratory time. And I want you to hear me here that this church celebrates believer baptism. We don't don't contradict it. We don't argue against it. We welcome people who believe in Jesus Christ. If they want to be baptized, we want to welcome that here. That's one of the reasons why you see it happen. But then the next week at church, very next week, was another beautiful week. I had seen God at work in the life of this young man before he was baptized by immersion. It was a beautiful story, and I can tell you the story sometime because God just did some great things there. Then the next week, in Visalia Church, they're like you folks. They just have children like crazy. It was ridiculous that year. We had 42 baptisms in one year, so we still need to catch up. Let's get going, guys. But because we had so many children being born, we had to have a lot of baptism services, and we tried to put them together. So on one particular Sunday, and instead of it being up here, the baptismal font was down on the floor on this particular Sunday because there were so many people up there. We had five baptisms of children. And not only did we have five baptisms of children on that particular Sunday, but each of the families that were baptizing their children had multiple children that were up there with them who had all been baptized. And in fact, there was one family, because farm families are like this, they had six kids already, and they were doing seventh baptism covenant child. So I think we had a total of about 60 people up in the front between grandparents and friends and all that other sort of stuff all on this particular Sunday, and there was a baptism font right in the middle. And the reason it was beautiful because i remember sitting there somewhere in the pew and we usually sat on that side about the fifth row back right in that spot we'll call it the empty place right beside mark i'm sitting there i'm looking up here and i can't have tears in my eyes because it's not just about the promise that god had made to those families for that little baby that they were baptizing on that particular sunday The same God who had moved and acted a previous week before to bring a teenage boy to the place of faith so much so that he would be dumped, immersed, to be stood up into new life in Christ is the same God who is acting, not just in the baby that was being held and baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, into the promise of God, into the family of God, with God as the actor and the mover. But so were the six brothers and sisters standing over here who said, that happened to me. That same God who promises it now to my little sister, promises it to me. He's my God. And they may not yet understand who Jesus is. They may not understand God's story yet. But you know, that God knows exactly who they are. Why? Because they're part of his family. They've been a part of his family since that day where water was dripped upon their forehead and they were welcomed into the family in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we do baptism, I want you to hear (laughs) God saying to you Oh How I love you So Oh How I love you How I love you So Oh How I love you So Oh, how I love you. How I love you so. I know we have a song after this that's planned. Aaron, I'm just going to ask you to play that song again. As the praise team comes up, would you pray with me as we understand more fully God is the actor and the mover that every drip of water in that baptismal font is a whisper of God I love you praise you God for the gift the sign and the seal of baptism that from the beginning of your people with Abraham you have been a promise you have been a promiser you have been a covenant maker and you are one who always keeps your covenants and your promises and when we welcome our children into the family of God we are doing so out of a response to the faith that you have given to their parents You have moved already in the life of their parents. Move them to that position of faith, that place of faith where they offer their kids for baptism. Not because it saves or redeems them from their sin, but because, Lord, it's us being faithful and obedient to your calling. It's us responding to your work and us welcoming another family member in that you have called, that you have chosen, that you have picked out by name and said, this is my child. Father, may we hear that echo every time the water drips in the baptismal font of just how much you love us. Amen. Amen.